Quarcast Nation. This is a bonus episode, a conversation with the one and only Catherine Caramanting, my wife, neuropsychologist, mother supreme of our three wonderful kids. And we had this impromptu conversation after doing the promo for the Resilience Conference on September 27th, 2 p.m., solvinghealthcare.ca backslash resilience. And we just started talking about life. We started talking about COVID-19. We're talking about the struggles that we went through, talking about the numbers, testing, what the future is going to look like, what what the fall and winter is going to look like, why it's creating some anxiety in our world. And yeah, we just get real with y'all. It's just an authentic conversation that uh, Kathy and I had. And um, she she co-hosted one episode with uh, Haley Harlock back in the day, and people were saying maybe she just she should take over solving healthcare. So, you know, here's another, you're going to get another chance to see uh, Kathy shine. So without further ado, Catherine Caramantang. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quedro Caramantang. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, we have a special guest on today, the one and only Catherine Karamantang, the better half of the Solving Healthcare brand. Kathy, how are you doing today? I'm good. I feel like we're socially distanced right now. (laughs) (laughs) That might be the funniest thing you've ever said, believe it or not. So how are we doing? How are we like, how are we doing like you and I and the family? How is we doing society wise, societal wise? How are you feeling about all this COVID stuff, all the stuff you're seeing in the press and so forth? Oh man, them be some heavy questions. Yeah, I mean, this is heavy times. Yeah, it's heavy times, (laughs) right? Well, you know, frankly, I think that first wave we did okay, and uh, as a family, and then at the end struggled a bit. And I, I heard that from a lot of people too. That like after that first three months of isolation, kind of going into the summer, you know, there were a lot of tough adjustments and just tough times for families around then. But I think I think over the summer, you know, we started feeling better. We were able to get out more. And that's also what I was hearing from other people. I was hearing from a lot of people that they were very stressed out about the fall and the winter and the second wave. I tend to not try to look ahead too much myself. But now that, you know, there's all this talk about the second wave and the rising cases, and especially with the impact on the kids and school, which we've just gotten back to and has created a lot of space and ease within our family and routine that that we've all enjoyed you know there's a lot of apprehension as a society i think i think we did great overall i think we handled it we handled it well but i think there will also be a lot of consequences of the shutdown and covid in terms of mental health which is obviously the lens through which i see a lot of things in life because of my profession but I think there'll be a lot of consequences that we'll be hearing about afterwards and even health wise in terms of shutting down the healthcare system. I don't think that data is going to come out 
for years, but then I think I think we'll look back and see a lot of consequences. Au contraire, au contraire, ma belle. <laughs> That's what we're working on now. We got a grant for this, the non-COVID related outcomes. Like you come in for a heart attack during the pandemic, what the results are. And we're also going to look at it post-pandemic because what we saw straight up, people coming in during the pandemic were coming in late. You know what I'm saying? And they yeah, were I know. In I mean, yeah, we, we talked about that a lot. And I, I mean, I think that's why it's very present in my mind about that happening. I mean, and there, there was no way to accurately record that data while it was happening. I mean, maybe record it, but not really get an understanding. But you've always got your finger on the pulse, son. So I. Oh, yeah. I oh, yeah. But yeah. It always killing me, too, like how reactionary we were. Like, I almost felt like there was room for a bit more planning, you know, in terms of how are we going to handle the elective OR cases? Or I hate using that word elective now because a lot of those cases were. Yeah beyond elective. classified as elective and necessary yeah. yeah how are we managing our kids mental illness how we like i think a lot of it maybe was hard to predict but some of it i don't think was as hard to predict you know what i'm saying yeah i mean it's tough because like when the numbers like the predictions were first coming out about the numbers and you and i have had lots of conversations about how inaccurate those numbers were and why that was um, but when the when that information was coming out, the modeling, I mean, sure, you can understand that the government that would be their only focus is to prevent like a mass death situation, right? Like a mass pandemic illness situation in in their country and in their communities. But you know, as we were seeing, like as you were seeing on the ground, that that wasn't happening. You know, ICUs weren't filling up like far from it. Hospitals weren't filling up with patients. I do feel like the government could have shifted more attention and more resources to, okay, well, you know, we've locked people in their houses essentially uh, and put them under this intense stress and taken away all their coping strategies for, you know, four weeks, then eight weeks and 12 weeks and on and on. Like what, you know, what do we think the impact of that is going to be? And, mm. and how are we, more importantly, how are we going to mitigate that? And I, I really, I agree with you. I don't think, I think we're reactive. The other thing we're reactive about is testing. Like what the heck is going on? You know, we, we have people lining up for eight hours to get tested. You can't even get in. You're getting turned away in the morning hours because people have lined up at 2.30 in the morning. They closed the center in Ontario because it was dangerous for people. There were so many people waiting. They yeah. deemed it to be dangerous for people to wait to get testing. Like, did we not anticipate that when kids were sent back to school and runny nose was one of the symptoms uh, that prevents kids from going to school, that we were going to get a mass influx of, of people going to these testing centers? Like, yeah. you know, they're just talking now about hiring more people at the testing centers and working on that. It's like that should have been done in like May. You know, so I do agree with you that, you know, we're, we're quite reactive and, and also that we're just slow moving. We're slow moving in terms of change, which is unfortunate because people have been like the public has been forced to be fast moving in terms of change, but the government still shows that it's slow moving in terms of change. And that's, you know, that's, I think, I don't know. It's yeah. Just, you got, I mean, I've been, that's one of the things I was most proud of the hospitals that I was working at, to be honest with you, is how nimble they were. You come across new evidence for this approach for dealing with COVID patients on ventilators or needing high flow oxygen. Or, like we adapted and we adapted quick. We adapted practices that were, we didn't have the strongest evidence for, but seemed to make sense. 
everyone was nimble. The PPE trying to be like trying to conserve it and think about ways of how to to manage that problem. Everything was nimble. And this is what we need from from our government now too. Like people cannot be waiting eight hours with a child or whatever it is. Four hours with a two-year-old, multiple children. Yeah. What's going to happen when it's minus 30? Yeah. Like people can't wait outside in lawn chairs when it's minus 30 with a baby who has a fever. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they, like they have to find a better way to do it. And I know they're working on it. They're talking about pharmacies and the spit or sputum test, whatever. But it's just, it's not happening quick enough. And like you said, it's all reactive. You know, it's all happening after it needed to be in place where why weren't they testing these spit tests alongside the nasal swabs in June, you know, yeah. like I just, when other countries were already using them. Yeah. So I, why, why isn't there a nurse in every school? What exactly? Um, kids. Imagine this kids got the sniffles. Oh, let me just swab you before going home. Yep. Bam. Put you Bob is your room. second cousin or Larry's your uncle outside. Yeah, I don't know. I just think I just think some big change in terms of testing needs to happen quick. And I think they need to be there are mental health services, virtual mental health services available through the government of Ontario, uh, that people can access. And the people like people don't know about these services. And so I just think that there needs to be more attention put on other things besides like, how do we keep people distance and everybody wear a mask? Like, okay, that's important, but we're all kind of getting that now, you know, let's, let's focus on more attention on other things. Let's move them quicker. Yeah. It would be, it'd, it'd be smart actually. Like if you think about, Hey man, who knows what November is going to look like if your kids are going to be stuck home for two weeks intermittently and you know, they, there's a lot of kids struggling right now. I mean, we're going to talk about it at the conference too, but you know, Adrian seeing a lot of kids struggle, family struggle. What are the resources that we're going to talk about? Like we, you know, we were on, uh, we saw the part of that prime minister address. Did you see the whole thing? Uh, yeah, pretty much. Did he, watched the whole did he thing. touch on yeah. mental illness? No, I don't, I don't think he touched. I think he just touched on like, we're going to take care of Canadians. Like you've been, you know, it's been hard on people. Well, what blah, else blah, are you going to do? Give well, me, no, I know. If, I mean, the, the whole speech, I mean, it's just a typical political thing. Speeches are vague. Like you said, you said it in your, one of your TV interviews, you said the devil's in the details, right? So like you can stand up there and say like, we're going to take care of Canadians. And it, they listed some things they're doing, some financial programs that they're continuing, which is fantastic. I mean, that's huge. And he can't say everything in a speech. No politician can, every little detail, right? But like release that quickly you know, what the plan is and have specifics. Use programs that are already running and, and support them. Like don't reinvent the wheel. Don't put money into, you know, trying to find a bunch of new stuff, which takes time. Like use the programs that are that are already working and, and put more money into them and get, get help. That's a good Publicly point. Publicly fund like, mental health. Publicly fund psychotherapy. Yeah, man. Why not give people a benefit? They're publicly funding prescriptions you know, people are struggling with mental health right now. Why not give people, okay, you get the CERB or whatever. Why don't you also get, you know, a thousand bucks, 2000 bucks, 5,000 bucks, whatever for of publicly funded therapy during this time. I don't oh, know. Man. I mean, you don't have to give them the money. You just fund the, the therapy. Like, uh, That's what I mean. yeah. 
Yeah, just um, I mean, if you talk about 80-20 when it comes to or efficient, uh, like get the biggest bang for your buck. I know I'm married to you, so it's biased, but you you deal with somebody's mental health, man, everything gets better. Their health, their like sorry, their physical health, their well-being, their productivity, their it trickles down into a family. Like you, man, you got a mom or dad that's depressed. Think about how you know, you got a, like three kids, four kids, how that trickles down to your household. You know what I'm saying? Like not having a, a family member that's engaged, like the queen or king of the house. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I just, I think it's yeah. just such an easy, the like, biggest bang for your buck personally, when it comes to healthcare that is not already publicly funded. There it is. And the earlier you give people the tools, the earlier you intervene when people are stressed out in Truth. a stressful circumstance, the more you prevent the longer term negative outcomes of that, the more you prevent the development of a diagnosable mental illness. We saw this when I was working at the family health team and we shortened our wait times by offering urgent therapy services yeah. to people by interacting with people, even by phone right away, rather than have them sit on a wait list for three months or six months by giving, you know, identifying the people that were in acute need and giving them coping tools and check-ins right away. Then we would call those people back three months later and they were like, no, actually, you know, I'm, I'm doing okay. And maybe one more check-in and I'll be fine. Instead of before we were calling people back three, six months later and they were suffering, they were off work. You know, they couldn't get through. And that's 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 just the truth of it. It's hard, right? And if you have the support early, maybe you can like get over that hump before it becomes a mountain. Yeah. You know? It's a, it's a very, very good point. It made, it made me think too. I mean, like, once again, like thinking about your future, thinking about the problems that Canadians are going to have, which this is going to be a big one. We even hear that, you know, if you look at overdose cases in BC that they've ramped up. I mean, the other thing too, you brought up this point. I just, I can't shake it. The the testing thing. It's a good, good point. Like if I were in charge, okay. Cause the testing is going to be our future, to be honest with you. So like, mm-hmm. if we want to get back to some real life, yeah. you imagine you, you do side by side, like you said, you get like nine sample, like from Denmark, from England, from us, you get all these companies, you just test them head to head with your current platform yep and just be and like oh this rapid test seemed to be a little less accurate but we got the response and you know in 10 minutes like we should go this go with this and maybe you know low risk population like there's ways of dealing with this and i don't think that one was too hard to wrap your head around and okay the fact that it's now we don't have this yet and it's all over the world like this is still so crazy to me Okay, so I want to propose to you an idea for testing that that my mom, that grandma and I had today when we were sitting down Uh-oh. at breakfast having Uh-oh. a cup of coffee. Am I, am this, is, this, this is what happens the when ready for the, the, Warren, the Warren women get together and come up with ideas. Okay, so Nobody you take the test. Is. Maybe the test is not 100% or, you know, it's not that... What, like, what's the level of specificity and sensitivity of the PCR? It's like 99.9 or whatever. I don't right? think so. That's not right. Not that like, good? The, okay, no, let's no, even... It's, no, well, I mean, in re- like the ones that we have right now aren't ninety nine. Like they're okay. So okay. let's even pretend that that's ninety eight, right? Okay. So let's pretend that I don't know what the standard is that Health Canada is holding everybody hostage with in terms of uh, the rapid testing. But let's say that one of these tests that's being used elsewhere in the world actively is ninety percent specific or ninety percent sensitive, right, to COVID. 
So let's say that you take that test, you get your result within an hour, and it says you have a 90% chance that you have COVID. 10% chance we're wrong, right? So here's your options. Self-isolate for 14 days or go stand in line for five hours and get a nasal swab. And, you know, and then you'll find out if you actually have it. But within one hour, you have the sniffles or your kid has the sniffles. You go to the pharmacy, you spit in a tube within one hour, you know, or maybe immediately or even within five hours, you know what your result is. So you go home, you isolate for those five hours, you phone the pharmacy, you look it up online, you have your result, and then you can make a decision. If it says 90% chance, you have it, 10% chance, you don't, you know what you need to do. If it says you don't have it, right? Like if it's specific enough, right? And it says you don't have it, then, and we can trust that, then we can say, okay, go about your daily business. You don't need to go for this big, you know, for the PCR test. Yeah. I mean, from what I'm gathering, it's going to end up being like a screen because there's a couple of ways to go around that. Like if it is so sensitive would be like, you could rule it out. Specific means it's truly, you could rule it in. Like it's truly COVID-19. The thing that I think people are most anxious about is how sensitive it is. They want to make sure you're, it's ruled out. So, you know, if you do, or if you're negative, say, for example, but the sensitivity is only, say, 75% or 80%, what if you took the test twice or three times, like, say, two, two days in a row, even? Good point. Yeah, so yeah. you take it out, or let's say twice that day, 8 a.m. and then 8 a.m. or something like that. The fact that you have two negative tests really reduce your chances of truly having it. You know what I mean? Like there's there's ways around this shit that I just think that we're, yeah. we're I don't know if we're dancing with. Like I would not think I want somebody to go, I want Tam has anyone asked Tam and just said, what is the hold up here? What is it? Are they holding off for Spartan? They've said, they said they want to make sure they're not going to. So I don't know if it's Tam, but Health Canada has said we're not going to prove anything that endangers the lives of Canadians. So I, I guess it's true what you're saying is that they're not so much afraid of false positives, right? Yeah. But they're afraid of false negatives. Yeah. So I agree with you. So if you're symptomatic anyway, like actively symptomatic, then if you get a negative result from the screen, then if you're still symptomatic 24 hours later, you're required to go back in you know, it's recommended you either keep isolating for 14 days or you go back in and you take a second test. Because the truth is that probably the false negatives for some of these tests, probably some of it's going to be error, maybe error in sampling or error in the test, but some of it might be viral load. So your viral load might change over time, especially if, you know, you're newly sick and then you continue to develop more and more symptoms. So yeah, the next day, Okay, next day you're still 24 hours, you're still having more symptoms, symptoms are worsening. Then maybe you go in and get the full test, or maybe you go in and get another screener. I don't know what the cost of all this is. Like, but when we're putting like billions of dollars into the economy, I think they can probably kick some money towards like some sort of innovative idea for screening. Cost is not an issue here. Like it is always an issue, but if you think about the cost of people being off work or decreased productivity, the amount of people coming off school, engaging overtime and stuff like that. It's not even, I don't care what it, it's not, it's, I'm pretty sure it won't compare, but yeah. um, yeah, man, I just think, as you said, we just need to be like, you don't have to aim for perfection, you know? And, right. and back to your point too, like if you're having, maybe the ideal scenarios is for people that have low pretest probability, i.e. less likely to have COVID, but they want to be sure. 
You know what I mean? Like if you're having symptoms that are pretty black and white, go get the, the normal test. You know what I'm saying? But yeah, there's a lot of ways around it. And then the other part of testing too is just while we have an audience is people got to realize even if you're positive, it's PCR just means that you have some form of RNA of the virus in your system. You could have had exposure three months ago, three weeks ago. It doesn't really tell you about how infectious, if you're infectious or not. And and the this culture we've had about really ramping up the testing, I guess what I'm trying to get at is ultimately we don't need to panic yet, especially because we're not seeing increase in hospitalizations and so forth. But what we are getting from the media is a lot of panic. You know what oh I'm saying? Oh my gosh. Even even like from the public health and even from Ford, I feel like a lot of the statements have been very like sort of public blaming and shaming over like, oh, you guys are getting together at parties and, you know, these all these like small gatherings and being outside and being too close. Like people aren't listening to public health advice. Like that's sort of the you know, the approach that they're taking instead of saying like, actually, you know, what we need so that people can do these things is some sort of better testing system. You know what I mean? And we understand that all of you guys out there that are are doing your best, but you're tired. You know, you're tired of having to isolate and stay away. And you had a good summer and you got used to that. So we know it's hard to change back, you know, so here's what we need you to do now uh, as best as you possibly can. And we are going to work on our end to push harder to get testing into all pharmacies, not 60 pharmacies in the province, all pharmacies, you know, like it just, I don't know. I just feel like there needs to be more responsibility on, on the government side for all of yeah, this. Um, exactly. Like everyone do their part. We're all, it doesn't have to be all shame and gloom, but let's all like, let's be active. Let's like a positive I don't know if it's positive psychology. I'm talking out of my ass. Absolutely. Here's what you can do, right? Not like here's what you can't do or here's what you're doing wrong, but here's what you can do to help. And here's what you can do for yourself. And I agree with you completely. And I, I mean, I know that you and I have a different viewpoint from a lot of people out there and a lot of people that we know, but I think part of that comes from the fact that you are in the hospital, literally on the very front line of this, like literally in the ICU treating COVID patients. And there aren't many or any for a lot of this time. So, you know, when you hear the numbers are going up, 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 up in terms of testing and rates of testing and all this kind of stuff. And then you see the numbers of hospitalization stay down here when numbers were lower or very close to that relative to the amount of positive tests. I just think that that information needs to be factored more into the government's response and into the messaging that they're sending out there. It's not a side note. It's a fact of this. It's a stat that's important. If 20 to 39 year olds are getting this and they're getting the sniffles and they're getting immune. I mean, there's this question about reinfection. I get that, but you know, they're building some immunity to this. They're not getting as sick. They're not going to hospital. Even people going to hospital aren't presenting as sick like that. That's a big important part of decision-making in terms of what we do as a society. I just, yeah, because I think it's important to like, be authentic and just be honest with what's happening because I think, and maybe the the government is factoring all this 
public health is factoring all this and they just don't want to articulate it because they think people are going to go crazy. But yeah, it might get confusing, right? Yeah, it might get confusing. But, that, yeah. you know, it's important. I just hope they're factoring it into all their planning and the discussions because, you know, that information that, you know, and it's maybe it's too early to say, like, we haven't had increased hospitalizations yet. There's countries that in Europe that, you know, Spain and, and France, they had increased cases and they had increased deaths. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of countries out there that had increased cases that aren't seeing that rise. And so, you know, what is it about that? Should we, you know, are we learning from that? Is it because of our population density? Is it because of virus? Like there's less viral load because we're all masking, you know, like let's have that discussion so we can learn. And I mean, maybe it's happening behind closed doors, but certainly, you know, as a, you know, a doc and family person, I would love to hear that discussion. You know what I mean? Like, knowing yeah, I that- mean, I'm sure that they are considering this because they mention it, like even Tam, I think I read one of her speeches recently and, and she mentioned it in that or her press releases that, you know, we're not necessarily seeing the corresponding increase in hospitalizations, which is a good thing. I mean, I get that they're afraid that this thing will go totally exponential. And like everybody's afraid of the Italy thing, you know, where the system gets overwhelmed. I get that. So they, they want to keep the numbers down in general. But I have no doubt that they're thinking about it and that they're watching it. But I mean, in terms of decision making going forward, I agree with you. I don't hear that it's being factored in. And, you know, maybe this is just us uh, wanting to hear that it's being factored in because we believe that that's an important part of the decision making. Mm-hmm. So just personally, I, I would like to hear that they're making some decisions based on yeah, that. And I mean, we're not really getting, I mean, you, I didn't hear about that TAM thing, which is assuring, but even when you see those models, like about the, I don't know if you saw that kind of picture of uh, exponential rise in models that they're predicting based like on- did they- did they just take the same graph from March and just put it into September? Because we all saw that graph and we all freaked out and we all isolated. And even though we isolated, they still said, we're going to see this massive influx and we will just be able, if we isolate, we'll just be able to keep ourselves at ICU capacity with increased capacity in the ICU. Like they had all those plans and it came nowhere near that. So like, you know, the fact that they're going back to those models, just personally, it's hard to trust it. And I don't want to tell the public not to listen to public health advice. That's not what I mean. But the modeling is flawed, clearly. Like if you modeled anything in business for that or anything else in public health for that, and you made decisions based on those models with the track record that they have, I mean, nobody would listen to it. Yeah. I mean, the thing that doesn't, get articulated in some of these models is that, you know, if you're wrong by it, depending on what you're factoring in, if you're wrong by even a small percent, that could be an exponential change in your results. Right. And the more assumptions in the model, the more volatile it is. And I mean, I'm not going to pretend to know everything that they did to come up with these predictions. But as you said, you know, we saw what the predictions look like earlier in the year. And like I said, I know they're trying to make sure everyone stays compliant and what have you, but I just want honest discussion, honest presentation of the data because people want to do good. They want to do their part. And you know, the other part, the other thing too is 
you know, about being honest with them is instead of saying, you know, just at the beginning, like stay indoors, like, you know, save lives, like all this stuff. Like, why weren't we saying, hey, guys, look, you guys were staying home. You guys were doing all your distancing and all this beautiful things. And look, ICU admissions, we're not getting overwhelmed. Where hospitals aren't getting overwhelmed. We're coping. Give that positive feedback. Because yeah. I could tell you as a someone, like when it comes to a coach that I had as a kid or a mentor or a teacher, when they're like, hey, man, see the results of what you did? That's yeah. winning. And it feels good, doesn't it? And you're doing your part as opposed to shame. What are you doing? Don't yeah. kill us for my staff. Fear. Yeah, fear. Like if you Whoa, go out in public, tomorrow. you're going to die or you're going to kill grandma. Do you know what I mean? Like it just, it was a lot of your early messaging. Like when, you know, when you first started to get requests to to talk on media about this, a lot of your early messaging was like, thank you everybody for doing what you're doing. And just to let you know, it's working because on the yeah. front lines, we're not seeing an overwhelm and influx of, of patients. And so, you know, keep it up. I do. I just totally agree with you. I think the messaging has to be positive. And I mean, I just want to say, like, I know, I know a lot of, a lot of what we're saying, like might be considered controversial by some in terms of, you know, we need to consider other factors and, you know, we need to be, we need to be careful not to do too much shutdown. There's other consequences. And a lot of people are, you know, just really worried about COVID, right. And catching COVID and spreading COVID. But if you look at the government's response, so um, I think just today on uh, CBC, I think it was Mike Crawley put out an article about the government's, like a first draft of the government's new response to to COVID, to the second wave. And there were, I think, three different uh, levels of planning for a small second wave, medium, and then a large second wave. And in every one of those models, there was not complete shutdown again, right? It was talking about like, you know, closing down high risk high contact businesses, you know, like gyms or restaurants and that, like some of Quebec has done again. Strip clubs. Yeah, definitely. High, high transmission. We, we know that from personal experience. So um, <laughs> that's not scientific. That's just personal. Yeah. But <laughs> that was a joke, by the way. We needed to qualify that? I just want to make sure. So. Yeah, you never sense. know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But I was reassured to see that because like, some of what we're saying, like sometimes when we talk with people, they're like, well, you guys are a little bit out there and you're not, you know, sort of careful enough or whatever. But when I hear that that's the government's plan, they're thinking the same way. They can't afford mentally, physically, financially to shut down again. Right. No, exactly. And everything they want to do is focused on keeping schools open so that people can work. Or we heard the prime minister say, keeping some form of childcare available so that women can work. Like these, these things are all being considered at all levels of government. And I'm really reassured to hear that. I think in that way, they seem on the same page that you know, as bad as a second wave can be, we have to take a novel approach this time. Yeah, I, I love that, actually. I, I, I will give some, you know, you'll hear some negativity, but I, we should give some props to the government to having that foresight and that realizing not just from the, I'm sure it's not just because of the economics, but just the overall impact of shutting down everything is is devastating, you know, especially 
you know, we talked about the health as well, like shutting down ORs and all that stuff. Like it's exponential how bad that could be. Yeah. So that's actually, yeah, that is really reassuring. And then I just want to say to people that are like, cause I do get this a lot saying like, Hey, you know, you should really be pushing, like, why are you being positive? You know, it's, uh, <laughs> you know, we should be scaring people into compliance and all that kind of stuff. And I'll just be like, reckon, as you alluded to recognize, this is what, like, we live this, our family lives this. Okay. You know, and it's not just me, but I'm coming home after, you know, intubating someone with COVID. Tell me that uh, the family isn't a little bit anxious or whatever on the impact that, for myself or the family, you know, like when we say that we should be, have a holistic approach to this thing, I think it comes from a good place and it comes from with some street cred. You know what I mean? I'm not some, we're not some bureaucrat sitting in an office with a government job that is not being impacted by shutdown and, and so forth. Cause I'm getting a full salary. Like this is like, this is coming from a holistic, real background and I, I just got to say something because you know i'm just getting tired of people with all these opinions like you're allowed your opinion but you push the agenda so hard when you're not you're not in it you don't see it you don't see what what the covid patients are like you're not seeing how they're getting through you're not seeing you know the impact of families that are not are living check to check in their barely getting through because they don't know when the kids will be back to school they can't figure out childcare, all this kind of stuff you know, I just, I think there's a lot of, I don't know how to say it, like unwarranted opinion on a lot of this stuff. And it just, yeah. ah, I don't know. I think everybody, everybody has an opinion. I mean, that's, that's the truth about any matter, but especially about these strong matters, right? Like these big impactful matters. And I think everybody has their own valid opinion based on their situation. But I agree with you that I have also felt a bit alienated from other people who have strong opinions about we should what we should or shouldn't be doing mm. when you know I see you coming home or you send me a picture of you in the hospital and you're in like full like hazmat PPE um, because you've been treating patients and then you're coming home and you know we have people at risk in our life you know in our home and you know not high high risk like not significant risk but people who would be considered more at risk we have a young family, you know, and we are in this, you know, I just really have felt like from the beginning, we've just had to accept, I mean, you know, I mean, maybe lots of families did this, but like from the very beginning, my impression looking at all the data and what we were hearing was like, we need to be fully prepared for you to get COVID. Like we need, I needed to have a plan for how we were going to isolate within the house and who was going to take care of you. And if I was sick, who was going to take care of the kids? And like, we had to be prepared and we had to accept that higher level of risk uh, from the beginning. Maybe that made it a little bit easier for us to just kind of, okay, we're at risk. We know it, you know, now we have to figure out how to get through. And maybe that helped us to build that resiliency and, and to cope through it a little bit. I'm just dropping on this. Nice there. plug. Yeah. But I do, I do agree that like, I mean, you and I've talked about this, that we we've both felt a bit alienated when we hear from other people that, you know, we need to be more cautious or our opinions are like a bit out there and a bit too, I don't know what to call it, but like loose or whatever. What's that? 
conservative no not yeah like 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 we're not conservative we're like unconcerned you know we're too liberal with the ideas about what we should be doing and i i just have felt like sometimes when i hear those opinions from people who haven't actually faced it head on as a family you know who like you said have been able to work from home on their full salary like kind of work from home on their full full salary and you know with a little exposure it's hard to um yeah man it's it's hard it's hard it's pretty invalidating to what we're going through oh man and remember <laughs> maybe i shouldn't say this remember that someone wanted to drop off like some jube jubes at a neighbor's house and oh. they're like, like at the mailbox like not enter this is the height of covid drop it off and just be like a like a, almost like a a packaged treat or something for the kids and they're like well, we shouldn't, like, that's dangerous or whatever. But like somebody outside of that situation had a, this was on like a group chat and somebody outside of that situation. So not even the two people involved in discussing about exchanging this treat, somebody outside was like shaming, you know, we shouldn't be doing that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I can't even talk about this one. But we we piped in and said like, yo, 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 like it's no more dangerous than getting something from a store. And when we were still going to pick up stuff at like, you know, Loblaws or whatever. And people were just like getting attacking and saying like, hey, be careful and all that stuff. I'm like, listen, you know, like I said, we're coming with the street cred, dog. Like, don't be don't be front like. We don't know what we're talking about. You're not getting COVID by some kid passing, like not even passing it to you, leaving it in your mailbox for your... Leave it on the step for three days, you know, if you need to, like whatever. Like people were being more careful back then. I get that. So I I think that's it, Hannah. I think it's it's not... It wasn't even the fact that somebody said, oh, we need to be careful. But it was the fact that when you and I both said like, look, I, you know, I think that's pretty low risk if you look compared to some other situations like we're in. At that point, we were going to grocery stores and not even masking. Yeah. Nobody in the grocery store was wearing a mask. No one was wearing masks. No one was wiping down carts. Like there's, that wasn't even a thing, right? So if you look back on it, it's like probably exchanging those jujubes or whatever it was, was, was probably low risk. But I don't think other people had that same perspective and people, and then when it was when people got sort of attacking and angry and, and, but people were talking from a place of fear and people are continuing to talk from a place of fear about that and to react from a place of fear. And I think we need to be very careful about our messaging around fear, right? Which is what we're talking about with the public health and sort of tampering some of this messaging with like, no, we aren't seeing the increased hospitalization. So we're actually in that regard, we're doing really well. You know, we, we just need to, we need to be really careful that as health professionals and the government needs to be really careful about creating that sense of fear. Because when people make decisions from a place of fear and when they react in relationships, interactions from a place of fear, like we saw in that like microcosm example of that, it gets irrational. We're not considering the other. It's not very kind and friendly. It's right? not very compassionate. It's not very... It's not compassionate. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. 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 And we all need to know, like, everyone will have their different opinions. Some of the best memes I've seen on the whole COVID thing is like, you know, if you choose to send your kid to school, okay. If you choose to keep your kid home, okay. If you choose to wear a mask in public everywhere you go, okay. Like, everybody is going to make their own decision and we're going to make ours, but let's not, let's not get critical of other people for what their decision is. 
Yeah, you know what? I like that a lot because I right? think, as long as um, we're following the public health guidelines. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I, I like that a lot. Like just have that empathy, have that compassion. People are have different risk tolerance, and often you don't know what's going on in their lives. Like you know, we would even I had to change this one up a bit too. Like when I would see people wearing the their masks in their car, I'd be like, what are you doing? But who knows? They could have came out of the Costco and not wanting to take off their mask because their hands are dirty. They could be an Uber driver, you know, same yeah. thing. If someone's not wearing a mask, maybe it's because they got a COPD. Maybe they got some like issues with like physically getting anxiety while wearing a mask. Like let's all be a little bit more compassionate, less judgy. And this includes myself and those around us. Cause I think, if we have a little bit more of that right now, compassion, we're way more likely to get through this and become more resilient. <laughs> I keep dropping <laughs> the R word. Keep dropping. Yeah. I barely learned what I just learned what that meant three days ago, by the way. Well, I was going to say like resilience is a really interesting concept and it's not something I think that we talk a lot about like as a culture, as a society. And like even in psychology, like we talk a lot about coping, which is like reactive, right? To the negative event, but resilience, which is like a positive psychology word, like sort of anticipating and preparing yourself for, for being able to get through that. And um, yeah, it's, uh, it'll be, I mean, that, that summit and I know, we weren't doing this to to talk about the summit, but that summit's going, I think, going to be really valuable. Oh, I, I, I mean, even the, so Michelle's episode's out right now. And man, just the idea of using a lot of these tools as like, think of it as an exercise for when you do have those obstacles, you have that more stretch. You're able to withstand the adversity more. Like you're, does that make sense? Withstand the adversity that doesn't, yeah withstand the yeah. adversity, the struggle, the challenges. And I just think in general, our society is a little bit less resilient than it was years ago. But I think for that reason, having this now during a pandemic, I think it's going to have a lot of benefit for a lot of people. So, well, you know, and hun, if you look at it, like, I mean, this was brought up at the beginning of the pandemic and even, even the prime minister said it in his speech, like we have had generations in the past who have gone through major international life-changing events mm. right and us as a country canada has not on a whole right. right and obviously regionally people have gone through devastating things but but as a whole on as a country and something so long lasting right so we need to know we need to start talking about resiliency again and we need to know that like just like people were able to get through world war ii with consequences, with struggles along the way, like no doubt it was not easy, but they were able to get it through. And we consider that one of our greatest generations, right? Mm -hmm. The people that came through that. We can do that here. The fact that we've gotten through a first wave, I know you said like we're less resilient than we were, you know, years ago. I would agree with that. But on a whole, I would say that after that first wave, when I see people out there, when I talk with people, I think as a whole, on average, we are building resiliency through this. We are prepared for another event. You know, is it going to be good? No. Like, am I dreading the winter? Do I have apprehension about it? Yeah, you know, I'm we talked about this the other day. I'm like, what are we going to do if everything shuts down? Like how are we going to get through and and it creates anxiety in me. But we have tools and we know we can do it and we've learned 
a lot of what I've learned from it is, you know, that it's not so much about trying to keep everything up as it went before, having the expectation that the kids are learning through school and, you know, doing all this at the same rate, but to kind of let go of a lot of those expectations. Let it go. <laughs> yeah. Let it so go. Well, we don't need to get into all that, but I, I just think that, I think that people are building resiliency and we, we have a, a real potential to do that here and people will struggle. I don't want to minimize that. There will be people that are building resiliency, but will struggle significantly. We know that's happening, but you know, I don't know. Is there a way that we can all, we can all get through this and get some growth, some silver lining out of it? I, I think so. I could not agree more. I think that's a good place to, and they're talking about uh, some optimism and mommy. Thanks for doing this, eh? Okay, I got to go take the stuff out of the oven. <laughs> Wicked. Podcast Nation, if you love this, leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube at Quadcast. Leave a five-star rating. Let's increase the visibility of the show, man. As you know, we are changing that book. This is going to be a, released probably a, a day before the conference, solvinghealthcare.ca backslash resilience. You guys are going to love it. Killer speakers, and you're looking at the two co-hosts. It's going to be an epic. Thanks so much, guys, and uh, we'll talk soon.